0: Hello, and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon Belden-Castengue, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today, we have a special treat. I'm really excited to be speaking with Peter Olson, Wesleyan class of 1997, director and creative technologist at IDEO. IDEO is one of the top design and innovation consulting firms in the world, and those of you familiar with the Careers by Design online course and campus program know that my own thoughts on career development have been very strongly influenced by IDEO's design thinking methodology. Peter, welcome to Careers by Design.
1: Hi, I'm really uh, happy to be here.
0: Uh, Peter, to start out, can you tell me a bit about your current role at IDEO?
1: Sure. Uh, My title is director and creative technologist, and um, like a lot of things at IDEO, that involves sort of an evolving uh, definition over time. But basically, I, I kind of think of design with a technology lens and technology with a design lens and really kind of use technology as a design medium to solve, you know, all kinds of problems. So that could be anything from making an organization more creative and more collaborative to launching a digital product or using technology as like a tool to unlock uh, an insight or a solution or something for a client. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a fairly broad role and it often involves, um, you know, really finding how technology might fit in a or even sometimes when technology is not the right way to go um, uh, for a given client challenge or a systemic challenge we're trying to tackle.
0: So tell me a bit about your road to Wesleyan. Why did you decide (laughs) to get a liberal arts education, and why Wesleyan specifically?
1: Um, I I think, um, so I uh, went to, I grew up in Mississippi, and I, uh, you know, in, in the town of Jackson, which is, you know, relative, you know, around 250,000 people, so not tiny, but also not huge. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the, a lot of my friends and, and people in, you know, I was in high school with, those of the, those of whom were looking to go to college were really looking inside. Mississippi or inside the South, and I really didn't want to stay there. I also, you know, in terms of um, liberal arts versus other types of educational, you know, paradigms, I knew I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, Um, although I knew and I knew that I needed kind of the ability to explore, Um, you know, at one level, I, you know, had always been interested in, in both arts and sciences at, you know, kind of simultaneously. So, you know, even my senior year in high school, I was in, I'd been in a math and science, uh, um, magnet program in our school system for, you know, since like fourth grade and kind of housed in that same magnet program was an arts Side and I, I just decided my senior year I'm going to also do theater, and so I, had, you know, had always kind of explored that type of thing. So I had always, you know, really wanted a broad base um, uh, framework that I could explore different things as part of my educational experience. Um, I knew I wasn't going to do well at a place where I had to choose my major on day one, um, and I think I probably chose my major at the very last possible moment, even at Wesleyan. <laughs> or my majors, um, you know. Additionally, I, I, you know, I looked at a bunch of different schools, and I, I felt like, um, you know, I wanted to go to some place that was maybe a little smaller, where I could. Maybe have more impact, or, or have the ability to participate more in in different things that that you know maybe a larger school might preclude. Um, and I, you know, one thing that the thing that really sold me <laughs> on Wesleyan, aside from you know just you know I think on my second campus visit, you know where I stayed overnight, um, every other place that I stayed or every place I visited, I really felt you know, the 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 student host or the guides were just kind of constantly trying to sell. And my host at Wesleyan, um uh he didn't denigrate the school exactly, but he was really upfront about here's what I think the challenges are and here's what I think Wesleyan does really well and you know, kinda was not giving me any BS at the time. <laughs> so I appreciated that, you know, the students were really, you know, kind of smart and clever and analytic and you know, able to express themselves very forthrightly about the school. Um and I pre- honestly just appreciated that rather than like, everything is perfect and everything is right. um, uh everything is is a hundred percent wonderful. Right. Whereas, you know, they were able to say, you know, here's where we excel, here's where you need to lean in, here's where you can have impact in the school. Um, so it was a lot of things. I think, you know, you know, at the end of the day, though, it was really like the ability and the kind of structure that allowed you to explore and, you know, go wide and then kind of, you know, go deep when you needed to. Um, and I I found that, you know, that's been useful throughout my life and I think in the case of in and you know going to a place where uh uh that supported that was really really what I needed
0: what kinds of things were you involved with on campus
1: um probably too much for my own time management um that's very Wesleyan right there exactly well yeah I mean it's sort of I've always kind of I, I, at, when I was a student, I, I often got myself kind of overcommitted, and that's a habit I haven't been able to get myself out of, um, even to this day. Um, although uh, having having two two-year-olds running around my house right now has has managed to to focus me a little bit more. <laughs> but um, uh, I, um, you know, I, I did a lot of things. I. I I tended to take a pretty health, health uh, pretty heavy course load. I was, um, you know, over and above kind of what was required on a, in a given semester, partially because I was a double major and, and non-overlapping majors. So I, I did uh, studio arts and neuroscience, um, which if you speak to a non-Wesleyan person sounds crazy. And if you speak to Wesleyan person, you get kind of a Oh yeah, kind of a shrug and <laughs> they tell you that they are an econ an English major an econ or uh, or or and dance major, and then you know move on to whatever else you're talking about so um, but I also i you know my senior year like for example i I helped uh, some help found a magazine that that ran for a few years even after we were gone um we I was on the rowing team for four years, and I was a spectacularly mediocre rower, but it was something that I found really uh, fulfilling and very, very difficult um, at the same time, so probably why it was fulfilling. Um, I did a little bit of, of theater. I was in the orchestra. Um, um, a little, There was a student art gallery that I was involved in. I did art pieces there. Um, you know tutored some people so there was a pretty wide range of things outside of the classroom um, which again Wesleyan I think has always been supportive of you learn as much outside as you do inside the the classroom um, and then uh, yeah on top of that just just a lot of you know particularly things like like studio you know there's one semester I was doing a fairly intensive studio course and also organic chemistry at the same time so that was that was a tough semester right. but um yeah.
0: How did you go about deciding what to do after graduation?
1: Um, there was a, I mean, there was a few things. I think, you know, I'm always reluctant to talk about my careers, so or I'm sometimes a little reluctant because I think it's often hard to replicate this path. But um, I think that's often, you know, the case that people's careers, you know, make more sense if you look back at them than in, in the moment. Absolutely. But, absolutely. I, um, so it kind of actually goes back to my, one of the first classes I took, um, my frost year at Wesleyan, I, I took an architecture studio class and this is it's, it was one of the most, you know, kind of influential educational experiences to this day that I've had. And it, it was the thing that made me become an a studio arts major in addition to, to just like, you know. Being one of these kind of life-changing educational experiences, but I took so I took a it was a class in the studio arts program of architecture, and it was you know I found myself kind of a couple weeks in just thinking, wow, this is the literally the hardest I've ever worked on anything in my life. Um, you know, pulling really really long hours in the studio, pulling um, all nighters on you know more often than I probably should have. And just trying to get these little, you know, details and, and, and spatial and architectural gestures right. And I was like, I really, really, really wanted to become an architect um, when I when I graduated. And, you know, so I, I graduated in 1997 and moved to New York. And fairly soon after that, found myself working uh, for an architectural firm called Eisenman Associates, which, you know, Peter Eisen was an architect. You know, he studied in architectural history classes at Wesleyan, and kind of six months later, I'm, I'm working at his firm. Um, and I worked there for about, I think, four to five months and realized, like, I still loved architecture as a discipline, but saw how, you know, didn't really want to do it professionally. I sort of saw how, um, you know, even in a firm like that, it was just a, ch- a really challenging uh uh, role to have and really uh, and sort of I, I saw I saw these these people like working every day they were amazing graphic designers they were amazing strategic thinkers they were amazing you know architects um, and really just kind of struggling to be seen uh, you know even even in a highly you know respected firm like that and at the same time uh, it was right at the time of the dot com boom, and at Wesleyan I had done, I had you know kind of gotten into uh, doing at first you know HTML and and you know sort of basic web technologies like that, and I you know had the opportunity initially to start just doing freelance work, doing HTML and coding and designing websites for just a variety of clients in New York and was relatively soon after that hired by a um, uh, a startup that um, their sort of main uh, line of business was running official celebrity websites. They had sort of, you know, connections to the William Morris Agency and other um, kind of talent agencies. And they, so they did things like they did uh, Cindy Crawford's first website and we did Britney Spears first website and we did a lot of these you know uh, uh, mostly female um, stars coming up um, who who were just trying to get involved you know in the internet as it was starting to blow up in, in consumers minds and we also ran more kind of content driven things so we had like a kind of you know, general entertainment website and um, a couple around movie reviews, and then one that was more of a kind of fun labor of love that was, you know, all about slasher movies and kung fu films and cult cinema and all these sort of weird subcultural sites. Right. Um which, ironically, was the one that always got the most attention from the press at the time. Um, I think, somewhat, somewhat to the chagrin of the company owner, um, as he was really trying to push his, his celebrity business. Um, but, um, and I think that's actually, you know, one thing we learned, and I think has been, uh, is true of a lot of, you know, web and digital properties now that authenticity is is a really important. A uh, tool for growing an audience, so the you know the one that was like the least likely to be successful became one of the more successful stables in the prop in the in the in or one of one of the more successful properties in the stable. Um, from there, so uh, you know, and I was there for about a year, and then joined another startup that was essentially a, a company that built you know communities for teens or or a large. Uh, sort of teen-focused community uh, and one of the first big community sites for uh, the, that population on the Internet. And we, you know, grew very rapidly for the time, you know, and it, it was the type of thing where we – features that we did there um, uh, grew – you know, we I saw later on places like Facebook and others where – it just sort of, it was a little ahead of its time in the sense that there wasn't the kind of business models that you know to support that level of kind of infrastructure need and and personnel need and all of that to support like the uh, you know uh, very large community. So right, um, you know, and then that was around the time of the dot com crash that um, when you know I was uh, basically laid off. You know, from there. Uh you know, around two thousand one,
0: what was it like working in the startup world during you know the lead up the height, and the bust yeah. of the dot com era I mean what were you finding in terms of the culture of the organizations you work for uh your subsequent experience getting laid off like can you reflect a little bit on that whole time period
1: yeah i mean the I mean the startup world was you know i think. You know, in retrospect, it was probably more than I could handle at the time. Um, but, you know, it was – it was. at one level, it was hyped. you know, and the, the recollections, it was all, you know, kind of a, a giant frat party with with venture capital. Um, and there were certainly things – those aspects of it. I mean, I think especially at the, the community site, there was actually, I think, a large number of very smart people working on it, trying to figure out how digital – you know, products really could develop, and it's things that are kind of commonplace now. We were really figuring out, um, and it was, you know, as the the system began to crash. You know, as I remember, actually pretty specifically, like one of the big kind of triggers of it was the antitrust uh, settlement against Microsoft mm-hmm. that caused Microsoft stock to crash, and then a lot of these other um, tech companies that were buoyed, you know, really by stock market expectations, started to slowly fall off, and um, you would hear things like, "I was watching my, you know, companies I am," and you just see all these people slowly sign off, you know, oh, yes. over the course of a few hours. Um, so the, the the crash time was was hard because essentially, like a, a lot of people, you know, I think like myself. Had a set of skills that went from very high demand to rapidly very low demand, and we, you know, a lot of us just had to kind of improvise um, right. to uh, to make a living um, for a few years. And it's, you know, at at one level, you should always be, you know, sensitive that we, you know we weren't people who were. Uh, mining coal and then the coal mine goes away or manufacturing cars and the car, you know, it goes, a car manufacturer goes away. And it was, you know, there was, especially for myself, you know, I was in New York, which is kind of always still a thriving um, economy and other people were maybe in the Bay, which still was, you know, did fine even after the crash. But it was, you know, it was sort of like, it was very tough to be kind of that young, out of a job um, with a skill set that just people were saying you don't need, um, so I said so I went back to freelancing basically, and then that, you know, and shortly thereafter in New York was September 11th, so that you know both depressed the mood and the economy, you know, after that that tragedy, and it's right. you know, New York is such a connected place that um, uh, no one I know, you know, there were very few people that weren't affected by that tragedy by losing friends or loved ones uh, you know directly or maybe one or two circles removed you know aside from just the the kind of psychic and and you know scars that are left by you know just being in a location that's been been you know that badly damaged you mm-hmm. know and I one of my one of the people I knew was actually one of my Wesleyan uh, classmates that that you know died in the, in the in those attacks so yeah, you know it was it was Uh, you know a a kind of difficult period I guess but um, you know and so you know I went back to freelancing and slowly kind of built up a a client base and um, tried to also like rapidly diversify my skills so I prior to that I was mostly working as a graphic designer um for, you know, for the web and some, you know, somewhat as like a producer or, project man- or product manager rather. Um, so thinking about how do we develop project products strategically um, and then how do we, you know, how to ultimately design them. And I kind of did the product management as an excuse to try and get design jobs, you know, <laughs> um, not thinking it was, it was totally what I wanted to do. And I, you know, as part of that, I started to build up a technology skill set. Like, So I, I really was kind of going back to the drawing board, kind of teaching myself how to code um, better. I had never really – I had learned, I'd done a little bit of, of computer coding as a kid. So I would kind of sit in front of like a Commodore 64 and try and get draw a circle and then make the circle move
0: right. or
1: something like that. Yeah, I remember those uh, days, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, – you know, but I had never done it, you know, at all in my coursework at Wesleyan. Um, and I had done just a small amount, you know, working working in the startups. And other than HTML, which, you know, again, which is more kind of the layout of, of pages and not the functionality. So I – but I, I realized that oftentimes, you know, particularly at that time when they're just the, the client – base was also probably a lot less technically or digital literate than they are today as Mm -hmm. most people now you know have a supercomputer in their pockets that are using that they're using to um connect to uh the digital world every day you know at the time even having a website was still uh a pretty new thing for a lot of people and so i had to be able to kind of develop deliver one-stop services to some clients or, you know, be able to flexibly take a large number, a different type of role. So I I was like, okay, well, I will learn to code as well as Mm -hmm. uh, uh, do the design and stuff like that. And so um, the kind of – the good thing from that was it it made it very uh, – it made it sort of possible to – you know kind of think through like everything that's needed to bring say a digital product or a website or something to life and and so when i i heard about the opportunity with marvel i was kind of in a good place to take it <laughs>
0: right how did that come about
1: um it was kind of boring <laughs> it was sort of like an ad on monster type of thing <laughs> um, you know it was uh um i I heard about this opportunity, um, went through a fairly quick interview process. I really gelled with the person who was looking to bring me on. I guess we should kind of say, like, what, what, what had happened at Marvel was, um, you know, in the late 90s, Marvel was in bankruptcy. And um, the team that brought it out is, you know, even now kind of under Disney. To a greater or lesser extent, still the team that, that is is running Marvel today. Um, and when the dot com bust happened, you know, generally Marvel really kind of divested itself of its digital properties. It just sort of was like it was not a priority in their kind of post bankruptcy period. So they had really just, there was a website that was marvel.com, it existed. Um, and but it was really minimally maintained. It wasn't really thought of as a product. They would sort of update the comic calendar every once in a while, and would post things like their SEC uh, regulatory investor relations posts, and that yeah. was kind of the, the sum of the content uh, when they brought me on. And the, the the people that that you know in their technology and publishing groups were sort of realizing was that with as their Movie properties um, were starting to develop, and these were this was before even Marvel Studios existed. But things like the Spider-Man and X-Men properties, run by you know, studio licensees, were starting to bring a lot of attention to the brand. There needed to be some digital presence, and so there were you know, they hired me, and when I when I started, I was literally the only person working full time on anything digital at Marvel. Okay, um, which in 2004 was kind of a crazy thing I think. Right. You know, sort of that that late but it you know i think they realized that there was it was important to um to catch up and to really uh uh develop develop their presence there so uh um you know i i, I like to say they they hired me and my my first kind of remit was holy crap, we have to redesign the site before Spider Man two comes out in six weeks. <laughs> um, right. and, which is a lot to ask of one person. But um, so but that's basically what we did. Like I um, we we really pared down what was there. We did some really quick processes of redesign and then were able to get it out in you know, prior to the movie launch. And then um, kind of just started to make the case that this was something that was really important long-term for the company uh, through various different ways and, you know, really pushed to have them invest in it. So, um, like, one of the first things I did after the the site relaunch was, and it it sounds kind of really quaint and antiquated now, but I was just like, we need to have, you know, a place where people can download wallpaper for their desktops okay. um, and there wasn't anything like that on there and I, you know lots of fan sites were you know I went on fan sites just to see what other people were doing and it's like let's just do this it would be relatively low effort and you know it, it acts as as marketing mm-hmm. and there was some actual actually resistance to that initially but I was just like let me try it and then I showed them the metrics within a couple Uh, you know, how many downloads we got within the space of a day. And they were like, okay, fine, you can keep doing stuff. (laughs) It was, uh, but yeah, it was like that. I mean, I think a lot of the things, um, and I think this, this, I think has a lot of, I think throughout the, the bulk of my career, like a lot of the things I think I've done, um, to the extent I've been successful has been things that, um, I didn't have exactly have permission for or didn't have an exact like roadmap to do, which is sort of like either saw a need or felt it needed to be there or, and just kind of did it at least in a minimal way so that uh, the, it, there would be an initial prototype or something that then we could use to validate or, or invalidate that hunch. So, you know, even something as simple as desktop wallpaper showed there was an interest in the brand and it Mm -hmm. was out there on digital. It was something we could, we could use to help the company.
0: And how big did that unit get by the time you left and how long were you there?
1: So I was there, uh, kind of 10 years and change. Um, and when I left, it was about 50 people, uh, all told, you know, for the digital media group. So, it experienced 50x growth over right. 10 years, <laughs> um,
0: which is pretty amazing. Uh,
1: yeah, and and you know my role definitely changed in different ways uh, while I was there, and I definitely moved more towards kind of the technology side uh, over time. Um, and then kind of I, I sort of I like to divide it up into kind of three rough periods. There's sort of the I call them the. The holy crap period, the oh crap period, and the well crap period. <laughs> 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 like, holy crap was just like, holy crap, I'm working for Marvel. You know, I'm working with this amazing brand, and holy crap, we have a lot to do to get this this brand, you know, really even up to speed digitally. And right. I think that period ended um, in 2007 when we launched uh, the first kind of digital comics product for. Uh, Marvel and really kind of the first one by a publisher for the comic book industry. And there, there were other ones. There were some di- that you could get comics digitally through licit and illicit ways. But this was the one that like uh, this was this was a product called Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited, which it now has become Marvel Unlimited without the, the two middle words there. And um, it, uh, it was the first time like a publisher had really leaned into digital distribution and. Um, uh for uh, comics you know in in the in the industry and then um, the middle period was oh crap was oh crap we have to be able to actually grow and scale mm. uh, this um because you know when we launched that product everything crashed immediately <laughs> um, right. because due to demand yeah um, and it, it took us a while really to get to a point where it was, ultimately, you know, a really stable, serviceable product, um, uh, you know, for for our, our consumers. And I, it, so it meant both scaling the technical capacity we had as well as scaling the organization and creating, you know, really helping design and, or build an organization that could grow to produce content, could handle community, could handle service, you know, all of the other things that you know, I might deal with now for a client. You know, which is sort of learning in the line of fire. So you know, in a lot of cases, you know, my job at that point was really kind of jumping into code and figuring out how we can make it more flexible or sustainable or um, uh, you know scalable, but also you know really thinking about like how do we grow the organization, how do we grow the product, how do we um, uh, ultimately sustain this so that it becomes more of a platform rather than just kind of a series of aggregated one-off products. I guess the third phase we call it well crap because I was sort of like well crap. We've really got to uh, not just adjust, not just attack the problem, but the the larger organizational uh, you know approaches that we take to solve problems. So my role transitioned from more of a kind of product and technology role to one that was focused on looking at innovation more broadly, uh, and that that meant you know having uh, a certain remit to just try new things. Um, so you know some of the things that came out of that were. Like our API program and our open data portal, as well as the kind of more, you know, under the hood bits of that, that, uh, you know, were part and parcel to that. I also went, you know, a lot more kind of in a little more public facing way, like speaking and talking about how, you know, Marvel uh, used technology. Um, and also, you know, really just looking at driving innovation and technological change both at Marvel and in some selected ways with the larger Disney organization. Um, So, like, I worked on the Disney open source strategy and and some internal groups around advanced technologies and and innovation throughout the Disney family of companies because Marvel, you know, at that point had been acquired by Disney. Um, And, uh, you know, really ultimately I got, you know, interested in as much in... Developing products, and but also in changing you know, innovation cultures within organizations at that point. So, I was really looking to. I, my focus was really shifting on not just how do we produce one-off products and platforms, but ultimately, like how do we uh, attack, you know, orga- organizational innovation challenges. Um, and that's actually how I first heard about IDEO. I was um, you know, doing coursework on, you know, innovation within organizations. And this company called IDEO kept popping up. (laughs) Um, And when I heard about, you know, a potential role there, I was like, well, I'm not totally looking to move per se, but I'd be curious about, you know, what it's like to be there. And, you know, so I applied for this role and thinking, you know, it's not exactly what I'm interested in doing. It seems like like I'm not a great fit for it, um, but I, I'm curious to talk to the company and see what it's like and things like that. And, you know, went and interviewed and, uh, you know, the person who interviewed me was like, yeah, you're not really the right fit for this. And it seems like the wrong role for you, but we want to talk to you <laughs> some more <laughs> and see if there is something that is right. And, uh, you know, after several months of kind of back and forth, we, you know, I ended up leaving Marvel to come to IDEO.
0: (laughs) Now, IDEO uses a very specific, albeit very flexible, rubric to attack problems Mm -hmm. that their clients face. Could you tell us a little bit about the process of human-centered design and how you went about learning it? Is it difficult for someone who hasn't used it before to learn?
1: Um, I wouldn't say it's... Yeah, difficult is... I would say, you know, so so we'll, I guess we'll start by defining what it is. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, IDEO uses, IDEO practices what's called human-centered design and uses a methodology uh, called design thinking. Um, and the two are kind of sometimes used interchangeably, but they're slightly different focuses. Sort of human-centered design is, is the what, and design thinking is kind of the how, if that makes sense. But mm-hmm. um, it's also hard to totally separate the two. Um and ultimately, it's a way of, of you know, it, looking at a solution set that, um, you know, first kind of breaks up uh, challenges into, you know, essentially looks at th- sort of the the intersection of three uh, areas of focus. There's sort of human needs. There's technological viability or sort of viability with the current state of the art so not necessarily high tech and digital, but with whatever you know systems and processes and everything could be used to make something a viable solution and then looking at the or a feasible solution and then looks at you know business or organizational feasibility. so um, you know do you have a business model or funding model or you know system of of in place that you can, Actually, sustain this, sustain sustain this within your organization or business. Um, so, idea I, you know, starts with those three lenses, but really always looks at the people first. Um, so we always look at ultimately like what do people need, and then layers on you know what's possible through technology or through the current state of the art in whatever realm you're working on, and what's possible through uh, the business um, you know model that or that could support it and when we work not just with for profit companies, so that could be, you know, the business model that might support a not for profit or a or a government or, or a whole range of, of organizations. So all of these terms are used very broadly. <laughs> right. And um, you know, a lot of firms, you know, even in my previous work we, you know, tended to look at one of the other constraints first rather than what the people need. Um, you know, so you could look at a project as a technology project first, and you might end up with something like Google Glass, which I think is amazing technology, but really never found the market or, right. you know, address the human need very well for it. Or you could start with a business uh, feasibility um, uh, lens first, and you know, look at something like ATM fees, or you know, maybe tripling your price for a car-sharing service when it gets really busy traffic times, which make a lot of maybe economic sense, but um, might hurt your brand or might diminish the consumer experience that ultimately makes the, your product sustainable. So we always tend to look first at like, what do people need and want? And we do that primarily through, you know, direct observation in different ways. So keeping people in the context, they might use a product um, uh, or, you keeping people or going to people's homes and going to people's places of businesses and shadowing them or allowing freeform discussions and avoiding kind of more traditional uh, techniques like a, a focus group or something like that. You know, so if we were doing, say, a product for new parents, we would probably look at them interacting with their kids rather than pulling them behind a one-way mirror or two-way mirror and uh, um, having them talk about what they do with their kids because oftentimes that helps surface you know, needs, behaviors, and hacks and workarounds that, that can help drive product development um, in a lot more uh, nuanced and interesting way and ultimately, like, less risky way um, for a business than, um, than uh, a typical, you know, broad-based research method. Um, and I guess the sort of the, the next thing or the, I think... That is maybe distinct idea, or, or, or at least we use extensively. Is after we do all this type of research, we get a lot of empathy for the clients or the, or the end users of a product that's or service that are you know going to be affected by it. Is we really learn by building and making. So you know we have a saying, build to think. <laughs> so uh, we make a lot and prototype a lot, rather than um, kind of. Uh rather than overly discussing things or or you know uh, and, or trying to go through a big theatrical reveal of a solution at the end of a process, <laughs> we tend to we tend to build a lot and and really work with clients rather than kind of design for them if that makes sense. you know right. we, we try and bring, you know, stakeholders and end users into the same room and, and create solutions collectively rather than, you know, assume we have all the answers and and come up with something that probably that may not fit ultimately what what a user needs.
0: Can you give us an example of a project you've worked on to help listeners kind of see it?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, it's like I realize it's really abstract. Um, so, I mean, a, a, a good example um, – and it's sort of top of mind because there's this this product re- recently launched. Um, uh, we worked on a project dealing with uh, flood resiliency and flood insurance in New York. So ah. New York is a coastal city, um, and uh, the number of people inside there's about 400,000 people, you know, at some level of flood risk in in New York. Um, which to give you know, a sense of scale is actually larger than the entire population of New Orleans. Right. So, um, and there is both right now a physical risk and a pretty large economic risk uh, to the people in these, these vulnerable areas. So um, the the changes in flood insurance policy are causing, you know, at least for some people, um uh, Flood insurance premiums, which are you know often mandated by mortgages and things like that, uh, to rise fairly rapidly, mm-hmm. um, as well as you know, and a lot of people just don't realize they're at risk, and so we were we were given the remit to work with um, uh, a non not not-for-profit here, and also kind of you know through a larger group of stakeholders, and even including you know representatives from the local and state government, uh, other nonprofits and and the federal government through FEMA um, kind of to create a solution that would bring awareness to this you know challenge and also allow people to uh, make hopefully economically rational decisions at least get the information they can make can to to make economically rational decisions about, Flood insurance rates. So it's, you know, because it's both an individual challenge as well as it's something that could potentially over the next, you know, 10, 15 years really totally remake uh, entire neighborhoods in New York, some of which have been, you know, kind of stalwart, you know, middle class and lower middle class uh, neighborhoods. And, you know, so the people that are potentially affected by this are also populations that may not be really resilient to it today. So it's a big challenge. Um, It's a very complex systemic one, and um, you know we started out by interviewing people, and especially people who had been um, damaged by Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy in 2012, Um, and I think 2012. Let's say 2012. <laughs> Hopefully not missing that date. Missing up that date. But um, we, uh, um, and we found really early on that the people who had been, uh, there was this big population of people who had been damaged in Sandy, um, and who were really, really frustrated with the patchwork of services and the confusion and the misinformation that was going around with this. Right. We also realized early on that um, there was this whole population of people that didn't know that they were in danger and in, in, at economic or physical risk of flooding. Um, and it was really, really hard to contact those people um, because, you know, it's sort of let me tell you about a problem that you don't know you have right mm-hmm. so um we had to actually go out into the world and create these these pop-ups um in these neighborhoods to to even get people to pay attention to you know to the challenge and also to um get people to uh um to you know help us co-design okay. solutions so we did things like we created a, a, a Kind of mini marketing campaign that we would go out and set up, tape, you know, like card tables and chairs in these neighborhood, in in affected neighborhoods like, you know, Tribeca here in Manhattan, um, you know, the Rockaways, Broad Channel in in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, Gerritsen Beach, like all of these sort of uh, coastal neighborhoods throughout the five boroughs, and um, we did a we did a whole thing called, you know basic we called it Storm Surge City. So it was the sixth borough of four hundred thousand people. <laughs> we okay. made up T shirts, we made up things and even like we did a, a VR a virtual reality prototype where you could stand and see where the sandy flood line was in the neighborhood you were in and like turn turn your head and be able to see kind of where it would hit, you know, mashing and mash up that information with the with Google Maps information so you could actually see kind of a real-time view of what the Sandy floodline looked like in, you know, at the place you were standing Oh wow! Um, to really, and all of that was just as a provocation to get information about how people could start to engage with that. And, you know, so all of this leads to, you know, a strategy around like how we should present information, how we should, you know, the type of tone we should take um, tone being a very strategic part of a communication like this. Cause the, the temptation is to sort of be like, Mm fear-based and, you know, tell people they're doomed in one way or another. And, um, whereas we found that, you know, actually taking a more playful tone and using kind of clearly cited, you know, authoritative information was a lot more effective than trying to scare people into action. Um, even things like the site, which is up right now, there's a uh, visualization of today's you know the t- past 24 hours of tide that kind of ebbs and flows and then it shows the Sandy and Irene flood you know way you know high water marks and things like that um, so it's, it uses real-time data as a way to engage people um, and be authoritative and be friendly rather than um, trying to, to scare them <laughs> right and uh, ultimately and it, as well as like putting a lot of y- using a lot of complexity on the back end to hide complexity for end users. So there's things like there's a flood rate calculator, a flood insurance rate calculator that, as far as we know, is the only one that exists publicly today, um, as a non at least a non proprietary way. So, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it allows people to calculate their flood your potential flood insurance rate through FEMA, and then be able to take, um, you know. Action from that, and hopefully may allow people to make better decisions about how to apply their resources um, if they're uh, if they're in one of these flood-prone areas. So, you know, taking initial observations and often even kind of provocational things like like the, the virtual reality uh, prototype helped us understand need, which we were then able to prototype and turn into you know what is now working website. Um, so.
0: Great. No, that's great. It, it seems like one of the big trend lines in your career path was constantly learning new things. So I'm curious to know, what is it that you still want to learn? <laughs>
1: that's a great question. I mean, it's sort of, sometimes you you don't know what you want to learn until you start learning it. And I, I mean, I do think this is one of the great values. I, I think I've, I've talked to a lot of people, especially, you know, I've worked mostly in technology in various ways, even though I don't have a degree in it. Um, and a lot of people when we're hiring, when I've been hiring people or, or working with groups to hire people, you know, I, I tend to bias for someone who l- knows how to think critically and knows how to learn rather than Uh, you know maybe comes from from with a great computer science pedigree um, although those are never necessarily bad to have Mm -hmm. but I think like um, the ability to learn and the ability to kind of think through information critically are are really really important skills just for anyone to have and I think a liberal arts education really prepares you for that Mm -hmm. and you know, so to me, it's like what I might want to learn. I think that's hard to answer because I, you know, I probably won't know that I want to learn it until I, I come across it and try and learn it. But I think having you know the thing that I think Wesleyan really prepared me well for was the ability to kind of pick up and run with footballs as I've seen them, um, and and to be able to kind of think through information very quickly. Cause I think a lot of things that are ultimately, you know, kind of domain knowledge skills now you know computer programming I think even things like you know accountancy and legal law and a lot of things like that that are are capable of being capable of being automated in the future um, and I don't think critical thinking can be um, right so, you know I think as as machine learning and things like those become more sophisticated um, the thing that's going to be important to be like to have really good positions in the in the labor market in the next, you know, 20 to 30 years is, is not going to be knowing a specific skill, but knowing how to learn new skills and knowing how to think analytically and critically about things, and also creatively.
0: Well, that's a great endorsement for the liberal arts and a great <laughs> endorsement for Wesley and Peter Olson, class of 97. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much. This is uh, great to be able to reflect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thanks. Thanks. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway. Music by Andrew Santanello.